I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over. Welcome to Femidish, a podcast that seeks to explore the various intersections of food and feminism by sharing the stories of women from around the world and celebrating their unique ability to nourish themselves and one another. My name is Sandy, and I am here tonight with my co-host, Hope. Hi, Hope. Hey, everyone. And we are very excited about our guest tonight. Our guest is Mafam Mawini Alarcon a chef, owner, and cheese specialist of Mingle and Gray's. She is a, owns a cheese shop and eatery located in Chandler, Arizona. Thanks for calling in tonight. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Um, so we are recording here in Maine, and we have listeners all over the world. Um, tell us what's going on in Arizona in the U.S. Wow. Well, um, yeah, thanks for having me here on Femidish. And, you know, it's, it's really hot over here right now, but um, we're really excited. You know, fall is coming up and, you know, we're excited to have a lot of um, new cheeses come into our shop. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just about to actually acquire a liquor license. So we're going to do a lot of like cheese, beer, wine, booze pairings as well. So, um, yeah, that's what's going on right now. That's great. And you are recording at the shop, right? Yes, I'm here at the shop. We're actually closed on Monday, so it works out really well. Um, I get to have the whole cheese shop to myself. Um, I can even go into the case right now and start eating cheeses because nobody's <laughs> judge me. So, um, well. Well, for all of our listeners, um, we learned before that we started recording the cure for all of our cheeseaholics are uh, out there. So, Mafam, tell us about how you cured your addiction to cheese. I cured my addiction to <laughs> cheese by basically opening up a cheese shop because I see it all day, every day. I think about it 24-7. And as much as I love cheese some days, you know, I, I don't. I don't want, I don't have a cheese board for dinner every night. You know, I have people who ask me, um, wow, you must have like cheese. Cause you know, we create like lavish cheese and, you know, charcuterie displays and they say, you must eat like this every day. And, you know, I say, no, I actually don't. I, I don't eat as fancy as, as that is at the shop. When I get home, it's usually like a pre-made salad in a bag, but um, yeah. So if you were, if you're a cheeseaholic and you want to kind of curb that, you know, cheese binging go ahead and open up a cheese shop because you know you'll have your days of okay i'm done with cheese i need chocolate or yeah a vegetable (laughs) but i'm still very passionate about it so (laughs) yes a vegetable good point (laughs) (laughs) yeah so if you're out there and you're just like i could never open a cheese shop because i would just eat the whole thing and i wouldn't sell anything what you do is you just like binge once and you eat all of it in one night and then you'll be like, okay, I'm uh, I'm good for a while, actually. I think I'm good. Totally. <laughs> so then tell us how you got there. Tell us about um, how you got from being a young woman who was just really interested in cooking and learning to opening Mingle and Grace. Wow. You know what? This journey has been um, a lifelong dream of mine, not necessarily having a cheese shop, but being in the food industry. And um, I come from immigrant parents. My parents immigrated from Iran. And being a being a daughter of immigrants, you know, usually their aspirations for their children are 
you know, you go to college and you get a degree as, you know, being a doctor, lawyer, engineer, something where you're not going to have to struggle through life just like they did when they came to the U.S. And so I always thought, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'll have to be a doctor, a scientist, go into that field. But as a young girl, I just loved being in the kitchen with my mom when she would cook and she would cook every day for us. And um, I didn't think, I didn't even know that food, I can make a career out of being in the food business until I got into college. And at the time when I was in college, I was a chemistry major and planning on going to pharmacy school. And I worked at this uh, quaint coffee shop in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And and um, that coffee shop was also a cafe. And so I, you know, would tinker in the kitchen a little bit. But, you know, mostly I was a barista. And on some days, the, the owner of the restaurant would let me have a pop-up. And, and I say pop-up now. Back then, that was like in the two th- early 2000s. You didn't have pop-ups. But I would um, have pop-up Middle Eastern nights. And actually, this happened right after the, um, the U.S.-Iraq War. And in the small town, the small college town I was in, you know, not many people, people afraid of, they were just afraid of the word, you know, the location of the Middle East. And I really wanted to just kind of bring the small college community town together and introduce them Persian food and really just bring people together. And so we held a pop-up Middle Eastern night in this coffee shop and about we packed it to capacity. About 75 people showed up, mixed ages, college students, professors, and, and you know, other um, people in the community. And it was really fun. And, you know, I actually had my mom come in and cook with me. And we made like a, I think we made like a five course meal and charged like $12 for it per person. You know, we didn't have a concept of, you know, making money off of it. But, you know, and for the coffee shop owner, Ann Williams, she also just wanted to bring people together for her. It wasn't about, you know, turning a profit that night. I think, I think it was more just, it was just to bring people together because everybody was scared and, you know, um, anyway, so bringing, you know, people together over food, especially at that night over Persian food during a time of when the U S went to war with Iraq was just very memorable for me. And I just really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I kind of had my aha moment of like, I think I can make a career out of this. You know, this is something that, you know, I didn't grow up thinking I can make a career out of. And so, um, you know, that week I, you know, went to my parents and I said, you know what, I, um, I don't want to be a pharmacist. I have no passion in this. And I just, I'm doing it because I thought that's what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, I said, I want to, I want to own a restaurant and I want to, you know, create food and, you know, be around people and, you know, bring experiences to people and just really be a part of the community. You know, that's what small businesses are. They're part of the community. And it was a hard pill for my parents to swallow, no pun intended, since I was planning on going, studying to go into culinary, um, into pharmacy school. (laughs) But but they were very supportive. And, you know, they're like, are you sure? Like, they're like, this is, you know, um, it's a lot of work. It's, it's the restaurant industry is hard. And side note, you know, my, my dad's a professor. He was a professor at Arkansas State University. That's the, the, you know, the school I was attending. And so, um, so, you know, he just wanted us to have um, a better life as far as, you know, getting a career where, you know, you're going to be making a steady income. 
so he was just, they were just both like, you know, they were very supportive. And, um, you know, in the beginning, they were like, are you sure? And, you know, I said, yes, I, I'm not, I can't be any more sure of this. And working at that coffee shop, just, I was there for four years during my whole um, time in college, and I just loved it. And then I, my junior year, I, I changed my major to uh, business. And then I went ahead and worked at a country club kitchen before going into culinary school, because I had a lot of people in the industry, I reached out to other chefs, you know, telling them, you know, my, my aspirations. And they too said, Hey, you know what, just to let you know, this is not, this isn't a glamorous industry. This isn't the food network. And, you know, I said, no, I know. I mean, I've, I've worked in a cafe kitchen and now I'm working at a country club kitchen and I, I it's backbreaking work. You know, I, I was scrubbing floors. I was washing dishes when the dishwasher would call out at this country club. And I was the only, um, at one point, I was the only woman in, a, in the kitchen led by a whole bunch of men and, and boys. And they would take their smoke breaks and I would be left on the line having to work, you know, the pantry, the grill, the fry station. <laughs> and, I, and I was the only person that didn't smoke. And I was like, this isn't fair. I'm, you know, they're there on their smoke break and it's dinner time and these tickets are coming in. But it, it put me on the spot. And you know, and I loved it. I loved the adrenaline rush. I loved that, you know, as these tickets are coming in. And at one point I was like, okay, I, I need to speak up. I can't, you know, let them walk all over me <laughs> because they were, they were hanging out there. And I, you know, I go in the back and I'm like, Hey, I need help here. I don't even know how to grill a steak properly, you know, cause this is like my first real kitchen job. So they came back in, but at that, after that night, I was like, this is amazing. I love this. And um, and I also knew, you know, at that time too, like if this is, I'm not going to be in a kitchen with other women, it's going to be mostly men. And, and I, and I felt it, I felt the, you know, kind of the boys club, but you just kind of hold your own. And, and I, and I loved it. I haven't looked back um, after that, you know, that stint at the country club. I was like, okay, yeah, I am going to go to culinary school and really hone in my skills. And, um, so I'm laughing because you're, you're talking about, um, mostly a male dominated kitchen and everyone taking smoke breaks. And I will admit that um, I was a smoker for several years because it was the only way to get a break. Yeah. <laughs> so I started smoking. I started working in kitchens at a very young age. And so I started smoking pretty young, um, like as a teenager. And it was mostly just during my shifts or immediately after my shift. Um, and way more just for the 10 minute break that it allowed me as a smoker versus non-smokers not being allowed any breaks. And I, I'm happy to say that since I stopped working in commercial kitchens, I no longer smoke cigarettes, but it is a real uh, discrepancy between how many breaks smokers who work in kitchens get and how many breaks non-smokers get. And that's not fair. You are absolutely right. And I commend you for being like, well, damn it, I'm going to start smoking. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was 15 um, when I first started working for, um, I guess I won't say the name because I'm not sure what that would do for us legally. Um, <laughs> but like, like a national chain, like steakhouse kind of kitchen and all of yeah. the people who worked in the kitchen um, were all smokers and they'd all get multiple breaks and I would just have to keep on working because I didn't. So I picked up smoking, which served me well as far as getting me extra work breaks for, for many years. Now, <laughs> so- I, I, speaking of, of legal or anything, you know, we at Feminist Year do not condone picking up cigarette habits, okay? <laughs> you know, it's bad for you, your lungs, your body. We just, we're not saying to all the kids out there wanting to learn about feminism that you should just start smoking. 
Okay. No, no, no. It was a terrible idea. And I'm very happy that I no longer smoke. Yes. Hope regrets it very much. I regret it very much. Horrible decision. And I do not smoke anywhere. It's been, it's been, well, my youngest is almost five. It's been almost six years since I've smoked a cigarette. So, um, before we dive into um, your experience in culinary school, because I know there will be quite a bit to talk about in that as someone who has also graduated from culinary school, I just wanted to kind of acknowledge all of like the subtext going on in your story about, you know, these this pressure that you felt as, you know, a first generation, um, as a daughter of immigrant parents, of, you know, what success looks like and the fact that you were able to, you know, still identify where your passion lies and do that. And also you did that through this experience of bringing people together through food, which is something I've always been really passionate about. I just feel like people are way more receptive about learning through about other cultures and about people from um, other backgrounds when there's food involved. And so I just love that you managed to create this kind of one-off event that was so impactful for you, but I also hope given the culture um, and the climate, the political climate between you know, the Middle East and the United States at that time that you were able to use food to hopefully just kind of inspire a little more, um, if nothing else, a little more curiosity, a little more acceptance um, from the people in your community towards, you know, members of, I mean, the Middle East, that's such a broad term of members of the Middle East. <laughs> but I do know that at that time, I mean, I was quite young, um, but all of the countries that fall into that geographical region were really getting lumped together. And I feel like people from those areas were, you know, experiencing, um, you know, negative stereotypes and discrimination from people who were not educated on the various cultures. And just, you know, I just think that's great. I think it's a really beautiful way to use food. And the fact that it led you to kind of just really own your passion and what you really wanted to do with your life is great. Um, so what did, what was it like in culinary school? You have this experience of like knowing that, you know, you're like going to be one of the only women. Was culinary school similar? Were you the only woman in your class? Were you one of only a few? Um, and what was that like for you? Absolutely. So culinary school was a different experience for me. Um, I, so I moved to Arizona to go to the Arizona Culinary Institute in Scottsdale. And surprisingly, no, I think it was a pretty, it was like, a, it was a 50-50 divide amongst um, women and men in my class, although it was a very small classroom size. I think we were about 12. And so I found, um, I found that to be very, particularly very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of, I knew I'm going to get the bang for my buck in a sense that it's such a small classroom size because I'm going to get that attention I need when I have questions or what, as I'm learning and um, but yeah, no, I, I, I have some, I made a couple of friends and we, you know, we still keep in touch since then, since culinary school. And, um, it was just a mix of people in culinary school actually when I attended. And to my surprise, I thought everybody that goes to culinary school is very passionate about it. And, you know, all, everybody wanted to open up their own, their own restaurant or this and that. But to my surprise, um, I think there were a lot of misinformed students um, in culinary school. A lot of them had never even stepped inside of a kitchen going into culinary school. They didn't know what a restaurant, even that restaurant atmosphere was. So I felt like I had that, you know, I, I had that experience first. So I was thankful for that because, you know, the, the instructors did talk about, you know, make sure you do take a part-time job while you're in culinary school. So you, you, you gain that experience. But regardless, for me, it was really awesome though, because I learned a lot of 
habits from watching my mom and in the kitchen. So I learned how to properly chop vegetables, of course, and hold a knife and sharpen my knife and other things that, you know, I would get made fun of by the chefs is I grew up with my mom washing meat, you know, before she cooks the meat, she washes that chicken, she washes the steak. And so I remember in meat fabrication class, we were making tender, we were fabbing out tenderloins and I, I grabbed the tenderloin and I was, I took it to the prep sink and I was washing that tenderloin like really good with water like just like rinsing it you know scrubbing it just with water of course and the chef comes up to me he's like what the hell are you doing I'm like what and the meat you know like I, I was really confused at why he was scorning me you know kindly scorning me in an educational way he's like you're washing away all the flavor I'm like really my mom this is how my mom does it and um, he's like, no, you're not supposed to wash it. You're just supposed to pat it dry with your towel and then you, you know, cut it like so. And so little things that I picked up growing up from home and, and the way I, and the way we cooked, you know, of course, I also grew up with well done steaks and everything as well. Nothing was, you know, you, you burned the Now I'm curious, you're not the first person um, who's, you know, whose parents are from another culture who has mentioned washing meat before. And I know from my perspective, um, it's not recommended because when the water falls on the meat, it can splash. And it actually, in some cases, can be less sanitary than washing it. And this Correct. is my safety knowledge, like totally overtaking my brain. I'm like, ah, you were washing the meat. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm actually really curious from um, a cultural standpoint, do you know where that tradition started? Because you're not the only person that I've ever heard talk about that or seen do it. Um, it's not unique to Middle Eastern cultures. I've seen it from lots of different cultures. I think it stems from both Islam and Judaism as, with you know, blood being, um, you're not supposed to eat blood, right? In, in both of those religions. And so um, that's why, you know, in Judaism, they also, a lot of briskets are cooked because of... Um, you use a lot of stew meats. You don't make steaks in the Middle East, really. And you make kebabs, and those are all cooked well done. And and then the dirtiness, I think, of, of the animal and the meat, you just want to rinse it off. Um, I think that's where it stems from. Just from that makes so much sense now that you say yeah. it, and I, just, I never would have put that together because I, you know, um, actually relatives of my of mine are kosher. They keep kosher, um, and so I'm I'm kind of loosely like very lightly familiar with some of the kosher practices as far as like if we are having them over for a holiday how to accommodate that um but I, I guess I never really thought about the fact that it would be washing away the blood which is um, problematic in preparing in kosher and yeah and yeah exactly and so I remember after that class I, I called my mom and I said you, you guys have been doing this wrong all along and she was like what this is how we do it you know but yeah, I, I had many moments of calling my mom and, and telling her, no, this is the way to do it now. But of course, you know, in culinary school, it's French techniques that they teach you modern day commercial techniques. Um, I didn't want to erase what my mom's, what my grandparents and their generation ancestrals, ancestors have passed on. But I just found it very comical that I would every day after class say, oh, no, this is how you're supposed to do it. Or, you know, right. uh, like measuring things. You know, when you, when I ask for my mom, when I call my mom for a recipe, she never gives me exact measurements. It's always like a handful of this or just like 
a finger finger length oh, of this. <laughs> same. My yeah. mom is the exact same way, and it is so frustrating. Like definitely with food, even with like directions, like laundry. You know, I'm like, oh, I got a stain on this. What do I do? She's like, oh, you just kind of like you know wash it really good, and she like is really vague about it. I'm like, no, you are very good at it, and you have a specific way of doing it. Share it with me. Um, and she'll she'll leave out little directions and things with cooking, and I'll cook it and it doesn't come out right she's like oh well did you flour the broccoli before you put it in the quiche and I was yeah. like well of course not you didn't tell me to do that she's like Sandy you always flour the broccoli before you put it in the quiche I'm like well come on help me out here you're supposed to know that already it's supposed right. to be right <laughs> I am literally like grinning ear to ear because I actually have kind of an embarrassing story in culinary school when we like you know, the first couple of weeks when they're teaching you proper knife skills with your French knife and how to dice an onion according to like the French technique. Um, and, you know, I go home and my mom's cutting onions and she's cutting them in her hand, like with a steak yes. knife towards her hand, but like, oh. like a serrated steak knife too, like not even like, yeah. <laughs> so of course, like what you're saying, I say, no, mom, this is not how you do it. You have to use this knife and you have to take out a cutting board and I do all this. And of course, being so new, you know, and so young and, and naive about all this, I didn't realize how shitty my mother's knives were. And she had like the dullest knife in the world. <laughs> so I go at this onion, like with proper technique and managed to totally cut my hand open. <laughs> and so she's just staring at me like, so that's how I do it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Do you guys remember the glass cutting boards in your parents' homes? I don't know if your parents had those, but mine had the glass cutting boards, which was like yeah. really popular in the 90s maybe and yeah my sister had it at her cabin and I remember this is during culinary school too because we I went there and I said I'll make breakfast and I ended up you know using her glass cutting board <laughs> and cutting and I like I cut my fingers so badly that day and I was like damn it I said, you guys have to get rid of that glass cutting board my knife slid and I cut myself but yeah, just certain yeah. those tools that I don't think those are around anymore but I don't know. Just we have one, but we used it as a trivet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no cutting happens on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how how does your like thinking? You know, you clearly learned so much from your mom, and you still even like called her throughout culinary school and stuff. Did um, those kind of traditions or cultures or you know any of the type of food that you were used to growing up with? Um, does that influence the type of food that you make now at Mingle and Grace? Yes, absolutely. So, um, I, so at Mingle and Gray's, yeah, we are a cheese shop, but we're also an eatery and we do have culturally influenced sandwiches at our shop. And I use a lot of the foods and spices that I grew up with and I incorporate those into our sandwiches. And on a side note as well, um, my husband works with me too. You know, he's got a culinary background as well. And so his family's from Chile. And so we incorporate both of our cultures into our foods that we have. And since COVID, we've also provided a comfort menu option that's available on Thursdays and Saturdays at our shop. And it's always rotating, but every now and then, you know, I'll have a Persian comfort food meal or he'll do a Chilean food. And so actually this past week, my mom was in town and I had her come into our shop and I said, Hey mom, you're going to be the chef today and you're going to make, you know, some Persian comfort food. And our customers love it. They're very receptive and very open about our except excuse me they're very accepting of our combined cultures at mingle and grays and so with my mom coming in we had so many orders of the food that she made 
last week. And so um, I, I really enjoy just, um, you know, cooking from recipes from different cultures, you know, even the month of May for our comfort foods, I did an around the world kind of um, history tour and food history tour for our customers. And so you know, I would ask them, where do you want us to go, you know, this week? And so customers would reply on Instagram, like, let's go to India or let's go to Spain or Morocco. And I would do some research on the food. And if I had anybody that was of that cultural background, I'd reach out to them as well and, and ask them if they wanted to share any of their family recipe secrets that we can feature. So that was really awesome. fun. And that was go circling back to just my passion for other people's cultures and what Mingle and Graze is all about, basically just, you know, bringing people together, mingling and grazing, even though you really can't do that right now. But (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting about the um, having like other cultures, you know, like the around the world thing, like wonderful, super fun, um, you know, some kind of shake it up, I'm sure right now too, like something different to share with people because there's obviously all kinds of things going on. But it just made me think about this, like a little like moment that I had, um, I was reading about, and it was when, I don't remember if, Hope, I think you and I talked about this. I, I don't know if you know, Mafam, about, um, remember when the um, Allison Roman from the New York Times and Chrissy Teigen, like, got into a fight on the oh, internet. Yes. And people were really talking about, like, cultural appropriation from Allison Roman. You know, she would take things and, like, it was essentially like a curry, but she would call it a stew and, like, you know, or loosely, it, they were related. And um, so there's just lots of discussion and stuff about it. And I had this like moment of, well, you, you know, like, okay, well, you know, what if someone like, just cause they were born in a country doesn't mean they might necessarily know everything about cooking, but what about someone who like has studied it? Maybe they're from like, you know, there could be a white person from America, but they've like studied this one type of cooking for 20 something years. Like, is that still like, wouldn't that not be cultural appropriation? Like that was where my mind was at. And then I was reading when the Alison Roman thing happened and they started, they, uh, it was a really good example. It was just like a very like aha moment where it was like, you know, just flip it and reverse it for a minute and think about like, could someone in another, from another country, like I think the example was like the Philippines, could someone in the Philippines say, you know, I am the expert on cooking burgers in like the American mm-hmm. way. Like, how would we feel about that? Like, that was kind of an example they gave. And I was like, oh, you know, and it was, it was totally showing my like complete naivete about this. I was like, oh, well, of course not. They're not from here. How could they know how to, what are, what really a burger means? And it was, you know, I'm totally simplifying my thought process, but it really was this moment of like, oh, right. Yes. Like there's so much deeper to this. It's not just about like tools and techniques. It truly is about a culture. Yes. So you sharing your culture with everyone, like, you know, with the, um, with your, said your husband's Chilean and you'd be able to have like, you know, show like your Persian comfort foods and like what that means and stuff. Um, it just adds a whole other layer to it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't, if for me, from my personal perspective, I love it when other people, you know, want to learn about Persian cuisine or Persian culture and then they incorporate it. And I don't ever feel like it's appropriated from my culture I guess unless they just call it their own or not give credit to the history or to, you know, maybe get, maybe giving credit to just the culture, the people or where they got their recipe from could help, you know, but. Right. Yeah. And that, that definitely does not happen a lot. And I remember hearing about like, a oh, was all kinds of examples. I don't need to go into all of them, but um, yeah. And that was why, like, there was a little bit of nuance to the, to the, you know, people are really talking about with Alison Roman and Chrissy Teigen, which is just one example, but um, 
they it just it got really popular for all people were talking about a lot so it brought a lot of attention to this issue and um like you said you know where like where is that line and if there really is no like shout out to the region and to the people and the culture that brought those things and where they came from and um you know is that you 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 really need to do that and sort of pay homage to the type of cuisine that you're that you're making yes absolutely no i absolutely agree and i and when we did that our around the world series in the month of may you know i really did my best to oh, of course Shout out, shout out the cultures and, you know, reach out. You know, I did a feijoada from Brazil and I reached out to my friend Julia and, you know, I said, hey, I'm going to try this. And it's obviously it's not going to, I'm not calling it authentic. I just said, you know, this is my version based on a recipe that I, you know, I looked up and I created. But of course, feijoada is such a cultural dish with, you know, so much history. And it's almost like better eaten from a grandma who made it than, you know, me <laughs> for the first time. But we had a few Brazilians that night actually come in and pick it up and they really liked it. And they were very um, nice about it. Said, oh, I love it. Thank you. It's, it's hard for us to come, come across this and we like your version of it, you know? And so awesome. I was by no means ex- expecting them to say, wow, this is just like moms, you know? So. <laughs> well, nothing is ever just like moms, right? Exactly. No. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. It's such a, an interesting thing when we think about um food and there you can't you can't untie the culture from where whence food came um and the histories behind those and the people and stuff it's um and it makes it so much more fun to learn about and to cook and to share those things it it is so much more fun it does I, i honestly believe if more people actually cook from you know recipes from other cultures they get a better understanding of the people and you're just more accepting of people because it brings you closer to them you know tasting the foods that brings them comfort and you you tend to empathize with those people more than wanting to exclude them you know it's just I feel like food is very it should be or it is very inclusive and um, generally people who cook for other people are very accepting people I believe or I feel you know Um, so yeah awesome totally agree so I have a couple of friends um, that are from Chile originally, and um, I actually, one of them came and stayed with us for quite some time. Her husband did some work on our house and their whole family kind of moved in with us while that happened. And I was really surprised by the food that she was making because I feel like maybe this is myself, but I also feel like a lot of people assume that all of South American cuisine is spicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's just not what I found with, with her cooking and at least like the traditions that she brought with her. So would you take a minute, like a quick little minute and just kind of elaborate a little bit on like, what is Chilean food? Um, what is Persian food? Like what are some characteristics that you could look for to be like, Oh, this is Chilean food. It's, it's mostly X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah. So that's a great question. Um, so I've been married to my husband. I've been with my husband for, you know, over 13 years now, and his mom makes amazing Chilean food. So Chilean food, exactly. Like I, before meeting my husband, I never knew what Chilean food was. I wasn't familiar with um, Chilean people either. And, you know, I had a lot of friends who are Brazilian or Colombian um, and Mexican as well. But yeah, Chilean food is, I feel like it's also very similar. The so Chile is a very long, beautiful country, and it's also, you have the indigenous foods there, but you also have immigrant food there, and there are also a lot of immigrants from Spain, of course, um, and Germany, 
and um, and I think even there are some Russian influences as well. So a lot of the foods his mom would make, one of my favorites are empanadas. I'm not sure if you've had Chilean empanadas, but it's this fluffy pastry um, hot pocket in a sense. And it's filled with um, braised beef and caramelized onions. You've got the raisin in there, the hard boiled egg, and it's just amazing and delicious. And um, my husband, Cristobal, my husband's mom, Hema, when they lived in Chile, actually, their parents owned an empanada business. And so Cristobal's mom actually, grew, in a sense, grew up in the restaurant business, in the restaurant industry in Chile. And their empanadas in Santiago were like people would go to their restaurant because they were known as the number one empanadas. And oh, so, awesome. yeah. And so, so the empanadas are my, one of my favorites. And then you have um, carne machada, which is a bra- a wine braised beef stew and it's served with rice and the, the beef is usually, um, you know, you, you would use either tri-tip or short ribs and you braise it for several hours in, in red wine, carrots, cumin, onions, and it's served um, along white rice. And she would make this um, spicy sauce called ahi and it's, it's chili paste lime juice or lemon juice, onions, and olive oil. And so you you add that really spicy sauce to your dish if you want to spice up your dish. So that's another one of my favorite Chilean dishes. And one of the foods that we actually, it's a sandwich that we actually feature at our shop is um, influenced by the chacarero, and it's a Chilean sandwich. And it's made with, it's made with fresh bread. It has to be fresh bread, homemade style bread and thinly uh, seared steak with avocado, tomatoes, mayonnaise, and um, green beans. So the green beans is what makes it. And so we have that at our shop, but we make our in-house roast beef to substitute the thinly sliced steak. And then the Russian influence is the potato salad that his mom makes. And we now serve it as a side at our shop, but it's a roasted beet, carrot, and potato salad with garlic and peas, green peas, and it's mayonnaise and yogurt mixture. And so that is so delicious too. It's so creamy and you get the, um, that sweet tart flavor from the roasted beets and then the fluffy, you know, potatoes. So Chile, I, I, you know, has a wonderful food scene and of course, you know, it's a coastal, so seafood is really main there. And so they make a lot of, um, ceviche as well. And so I think it's just very diverse, similar to, you know, how the U.S. is with the diverse cultures. You know, you have the indigenous foods of the U.S. and then you have the immigrant food as well. And so it's just kind of been embraced over the years. Um, And gosh, there's so many other foods his mom makes that now I don't know why I'm running a blank with, but Oh, you get the tor- the tortilla, the papas, which is Spanish, but it's very popular in Spain as well, too. That that fried potato and onion dish that's served room temperature. Um, and Wow. That's so fun. And then what would be some like typical Persian foods? Like what would be what would make up what makes a Persian cuisine? 
So a lot of times people, you know, when you think Persian food or Middle Eastern food, you always think kebabs, but Persian food is beyond, is more than just the delicious grilled meats. It's, um, we use a lot of herbs in our cooking and the spices that we use, it's spices, but it's not like spicy, hot spices. It's very aromatic spices. A lot of um, like cumin, saffron is very big in Persian cooking, turmeric, rose water, rose petals, um, and then just different fruits and nuts actually go in the cooking process. So you've got a lot of sour tart flavor notes in the food, some sweet flavor notes in the foods, and um, but not spicy. So there, nothing and none of per, none of the foods that I've grown up with are actually spicy. Now there is a region in um, or a city in Iran called Bandar Abbas, and they are a coastal um, south, south coastal on the um, Persian Gulf. And their foods are spicy, but everywhere else in the region of Iran, the food's not spicy, but you've got, you know, a lot of, you cook with a lot of dried fruits, uh, lots of dried herbs like Orma Sabzi. I don't know if you're familiar with Orma Sabzi, but it's this, it's the national dish of Iran. It's a herb stew. It's with uh, parsley and cilantro, fenugreek and chives, excuse me, not chives, but leeks and red kidney beans and lamb and it's braised for hours and then it's um, flavored with dried lime and so it gives it a nice tart flavor and it's served with rice and of course tadik it's the crispy bottom part of the rice that every family member fights over it's buttery mm-hmm. and crispy and there are so many different variations of making tadik you can use potatoes on the bottom of the rice pot you can use um, naan or lavash bread some people even put fish, like fillets of fish on the bottom, and it gets nice and crispy. So, yeah, so Persian food and Chilean food are very, I would say the only, actually the only, one of the similarities we have actually is eating rice with our food. We eat a lot of rice, <laughs> Chileans and Persians. And then, so they have their empanadas, and then we have um, sambusa, which I think was um, possibly adopted from India or Pakistan, um, samosas. So those are really, those are really good too. And then we also adopted a, um, a a potato salad dish that comes from Russia. And when I look, when I study more about Persian cuisine, a lot of it also has, um, immigrant history behind it as well too, because just all the different, you know, throughout the years, you know, you know, so many people have immigrated from all over the world to Iran. You know, we have so a dish called kotlet, and it's this pit- it's like a latka, but with um, with ground meat in it. So it's fried. It's with the potatoes, egg, and meat, and it's pan fried. Make a sandwich out of it, and that came to Iran during World War II via the Polish people who were um, fleeing to Iran, and oh, then. Wow. Yeah, so and I, it's just so cool how, you know, I thought, wow, I always thought cutlet was a Persian food, but it comes from the word cutlet, which comes from Poland. And um, yeah, so when you when you really think about food and when you when you identify with food and you think, oh, no, this is specifically to our country, then when you do a little bit more research, it comes from other people as well, too. So... That's yeah, why it's kind of like what we were saying before about like you know it's hard you can't you can't take away like food and culture to to get exactly. each other. Yeah. It's just it'd be a lot like we all identify with our the foods that we grew up with, but when we do a little when we dig a little deeper, see where you know the foods come from, or 
um, a lot of our dishes, Persian dishes, have tomatoes in them. Well, tomatoes aren't indigenous to the Middle East region. That came from the Americas, you know, um, from colonization, which, you know, was brought back. So, or vice versa, you know, pomegranates come from Iran, but now they grow here as well, abundantly as well. So, or watermelons. And um, so it just goes back and forth. And, you know, it's unfortunate how food is, sometimes it goes to a different region because of the wars, but um, you can also look at the positive side of, you know, bring, you know, combining different cultures. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's super neat. And it, like you said, it's, you know, might be from some not so great circumstances, but it's shaped over time. And what, whether it's something as relatively recent as World War II, like what you're mentioning, um, or over thousands and thousands of years of, of food culture, people sharing food and spice trade. And um, unfortunately, things like colonization, um, you know, moving cultures around and stuff, but it has shaped things um, pretty significantly over time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, no, by no means am I, you know, supportive of colonization and, you know, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it breaks my heart because, you know, it's still happening worldwide right now and people have to feel, flee their countries, but when they flee their countries, they bring their culture, they bring their food and, um, it's a way to just accept people and celebrate them and, you know, do our best to fight for, for them and, and accept them here in our country now. So, yeah. so yeah. Absolutely agree. Well, we're talking about like values and stuff um, for sure. When it, you know, it comes to food, it's really hard to like, almost feels like every decision you make for what food you eat is um, an expression of a value, whether it's a cultural value or, you know, some, some, something else. Um, you said that you started selling some of your, um, you know, when you, before mingling graze was mingling graze, you started at some farmer's markets. Um, did it, has any part of like local food, um, you know, is that a big, is that a value for mingling graze and for you, or what would you say as far as like, you know, sourcing or the types of things that you sell, like, um, what, what sort of values would you put on that? Food? Absolutely. You know, it's very, actually at Mingle and Grace, it is very um, important to us to source locally as much as possible. That's how I got my start. Um, was working at, um, or selling, excuse me, my marinated olives at the farmer's market. So now I love it when people reach out to us and they say, you know, they're just starting out as well too. They might be just working out of a commercial kitchen, but you know, say it's there, we, we sell cheesecakes in a jar from Eddie. He has this um, cheesecake in a jar company called Copper Creek Cheesecake. So we sell it at our shop as well. Um, we've got the uh, desert um, mix, uh, not mixed greens, sorry, desert microgreens from Kyle. And so he also grows them here locally. And so we like to support other businesses that are just getting started as well. Um, we use Ramona Farm beans. These are actually indigenous beans to the Sonoran Valley here that date back, you know, hundreds of years. And so we use those beans in our salads. And then we use Hayden flour mills. Um, they're they're um, wheat berries in that same salad as well, too. And those are locally grown wheat berries here in Arizona. And, and they, they, they're a flour mill as well, too, and they make flour. And so we incorporate that when we're baking as well. But it's really important to us to support other people who are just starting out as well. Or maybe they're um, bigger than us, but we still want to support them because they're local. And we do have other places that support us because we wholesale our marinated olives to them as well. 
like first draft book bar in Phoenix. Um, and then before COVID, we were also at the Montelusia Resort in Scottsdale, Paradise Valley. So it's just, I think, you know, the more you're able to support other local businesses, it's just you're, you're empowering other people small businesses, other women, especially, and you're lifting them up and, and helping them. And that's really important to us. And we want to continue doing that. You know, we had to go on a pause shortly, you know, once COVID hit our state. And actually, we're, I think we're still like one of the hot spots right now, but um, it's really affected, affected business. But we pivot like, and I hate that word, <laughs> but it's kind of ingrained in me right now that you just have to you just have to come up with different things because people just want, they want something comforting. They want some kind of normalcy. So our cheese boards have been very comforting for people because even the price point that we have it is the price points on our foods. We've always wanted it to be something that it's for every, as a, we want to be as inclusive and pos, as much as possible. So a lot of people are able to get a cheese board and it's not breaking the bank. You know, it's, it's under $20 and it's a great cheese board to share with two people. So sorry. I think um, I was rambling I'll take, there. No, I was going to say, I'll, I'll take two over here, please. If you could yes, just absolutely. put those over to me. I need to get a little drone and <laughs> fly it over. <laughs> we can figure it out. We can make it work. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, I, I also um, am totally sick of the word pivot, um, but do you want to just share a little bit with us? It might be, you know, you don't have to um, go so far into it if you don't want, but, you know, do you want to share some of the stuff that you've had to do to change or, you know, how did yeah. uh, did COVID kind of totally mess everything up like it's messed everything else up? Yes, I know. So, so Mingle and Gray's started as a as a catering business and we were so we started Mingle and Grays in 2017. I, I started it while I was still working at Whole Foods actually and my husband was working at his um other restaurant job and we I would go to tasting rooms or I would have weddings to that hired me out and create these large lavish cheese and charcuterie displays, grazing tables. And that's how uh, my storefront started was because I I got so busy where I, where I was able to, I got to quit my job at Whole Foods and start the storefront and be a cheese shop and continue doing the grazing tables. And that was 80% of our business um, was our catering. So in addition to grazing tables, I and mean, we did large platters for people, we did any kind of catering, custom catering, taco bars for weddings, sandwiches for offices. So we didn't really rely on our storefront to bring in business as much, um, excuse me, to bring in sales for our business. It was mostly our catering. And generally that is what keeps a lot of businesses afloat is the catering. So when COVID hit, I mean, it, it hit us. Like we felt it. It was like a punch in the gut. Like oh, gosh. we had all of our events that were booked. We were booked through May and we even had some sprinkled events in June and July, but we were booked I mean, we had thousands of dollars in revenue that we were booked for and it wasn't, we didn't collect the money up front, which I'm glad we didn't, but it was lost sales. And so a lot of people were like, well, why didn't you collect the money up front? Like I, I would not, first of all, A, we would never like say, oh, too bad. You already gave us your deposit. We're not giving it back to you. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of people were like, why didn't you have a deposit and this and that? I was like, I, we don't do, I don't work that way. We did have deposits back then, but it was always refundable. 
Um, but I'm also glad because to have all that money and then to have to give it back would have hurt even more. But anyways, maybe, um, but yeah, we had all these events, you know, lined up and then they, they all started slowly getting canceled because I don't know, I don't know how it hit you guys, but for us, it was like, we all thought it was like, okay, it's maybe like a two or three week thing. And so, so my, so March for me, for us got canceled and for events and then slowly they were, you know, the CDC started saying, okay, this is, this is going to be a lot, you know, longer than we anticipated. So then um, our shutdown extended through April as well. And so all of our April events just got canceled indefinitely. Some people postponed it. And then, um, you know, and we just said, hey, you know what, you know, this is like no pressure. If you, if you need to cancel, you, you need to cancel. We even had a wedding um, that had to cancel as well. We had a few weddings that had to cancel as well. But, you know, we just we told them, let, let us know when and we'll do it for you. And of course, when things are safer. But so we just had to pivot and we had to come up with so that, you know, first, second week in March, we just said, OK, we have to we know a lot of people have lost their jobs. Everybody is suffering. And so let's put our menu on special. So we did everything mix and match on our menu, two for twenty dollars. So at some sometimes we were losing, you know, ten we were losing ten dollars per se, per transaction in the sense in sales with that special, but we were like, let's just we wow. need to bring in sales. We need to bring in sales and we also know that people are holding on to their money like they should be because they don't the future is unknown. And then we were like, you know what, let's let's do some meals, let's do comfort meals and just nothing fancy gourmet. It's just like we would do pot roast with mashed potatoes and roasted vegetables with the side salad. And that was, and a drink. And that was like $15 a person. Like we, again, like I said, we were just bringing in sales and just wanting to bring comfort to our community. And we also, we reached out to a local charity in our town that's called ICANN. And um, we said, you know, and ICANN, basically they um, help community, the community in need, their their kids in need. So they're an after-school program. They told us, yeah, a lot of the parents have lost their jobs. And so we said, well, we know that the, the city is providing breakfast and lunch for these kids. Let us provide dinner for these families. So these same, we're already yeah. making food. So we said, let us, you know, give us the families that need it the most. Like we didn't want to have to choose. But so they, they reached out to a few families and they would just um, send them to our shop. So they would give us a time and we'd have that meal ready for them. And a lot of times it was a single mom, you know, raising, um, you know, 10 other kids, but it wasn't just her kids. It was maybe like her sister's kids as well. She was helping out or, um, so yeah, so we did that for the first couple of weeks we were doing that. And then we just, we were like, we were also hurting as well, but we have such a, you know, loving community and we reached out and we said hey do you guys want to pitch in just the cost of what it costs us to make it and so it's basically instead of them you know paying these families or getting these families food they're just they're purchasing the meals from us and then the families come and pick it up so it was a it was a win-win situation for these families for the community to help out and we did that through the um through the month of may i believe and in the meantime, we also partnered up with a local coffee shop here, Peixoto Coffee, and we also fed the um, first responders and the um, healthcare heroes at the local hospitals here. So we just we just kind of like we said, okay, all hands on deck. Like this is just survival mode. We need to just make sure we're bringing in sales to 
keep the lights on. It wasn't about making profit or anything like that. Keep the lights on and keep our staff on. And yeah, but I just think staying positive has really helped us and relying on each other. My husband and I just, you know, trying to do the best we can. And our staff has been wonderful. Liz and Kat, we are, we call ourselves tiny and mighty because we are a very small shop. Um, we see about 24 people, but we're mighty because of um, we, during our catering time, I mean, we would cater out of our kitchen up to 500 for up to 500 people. So, um, and it would just be like four or five of us just busting ass. And, um, but I, we had some emotional, mo- a lot of emotional moments and every day we don't, we just work by the day. You know how they say, just live for the moment. And back then when, you, when people say live for the moment, you're like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Whatever. But you're now, everybody is literally living for the moment because you don't know what tomorrow brings in your health and your business, you know? So it just, that's my positive spin on it. And I just think also just kind of like the, um, on looking on the bright side of COVID and it's been so unfortunate because I know so many lives have been affected, have been lost. And, um, but it's also, I think it's brought more empathy for people and understanding people are more patient, I feel like. Um, and I think it's so amazing that, you know, you not only pivoted your business during like this very unprecedented time, but you did so in such a way to really kind of reach out to those around you who might be in need. And I just, we really think that's amazing and commend you. You're not the first business owner that we've heard from that's really kind of like stepped up for their community. Um, and I just think it's great. The more stories we hear about that just kind of gives me more faith in our country <laughs> coming out on this <laughs> for the good on the other end. Maybe we'll have yeah. developed like a countrywide sort of uh, sense of community that, you know, maybe we were lacking before, but um, mm-hmm. certainly people like you and your business and the changes that you're making and your willingness to, you know, help your neighbors helps us in that endeavor. Um, so before we finish up tonight, as you know, a, a cheesemonger of sorts, a cheese specialist, um, I'm sure our listeners are dying to know, tell us what your favorite cheese is and then let us know um, where we can find out more about you and about Mingle and Gray's. Um, if you have Instagram or a website, anything like that. Absolutely. So currently, because picking your favorite cheese is like picking your favorite fur baby or your, fur, your favorite kid, right? Currently, um, <laughs> my favorite cheese is, oh goodness, I'm going to have to go with, I'm looking at my cheese case right now, it's like <laughs> children, they're going to be mad at me. Which one of you do I like right now? Okay, it's based on my mood right now, and it, this is just a classic. I'm going to go with the classic Daphinois Brie from France. It's mm-hmm. a double cream brie. It's, a, it's one of those brie. A lot of people hate brie because of the rind, but it's one of those brie's that I like to introduce to beginner brie eaters by telling them to just eat the whole thing because even the rind is very mild and the, and the cream in the middle, it, especially when you leave it out at room temperature, it gets nice and oozy and it's really delicious. And if you aren't a brie fan, but you want to get to appreciate brie a little bit more, I recommend a sour cherry jam or a drizzle of honey to get your palate going. And then once you're courageous and brave enough, then please eat the brie 
with the rhymes. You do not create that little cave that I see some people <laughs> taking out all the, the yumminess and stuff. Yeah, it breaks my heart when I see the rind like left. And I like, no, that's it's a lie. I can sometimes be guilty of that. Although um, my favorite is uh, Delice de Bourgogne as far as the yes, breed like one of my favorites so. that is a very delicious brie I don't currently have that brie in my case but yes when we do have it it's around the holidays and it's it's amazing um sorry what was your other question about <laughs> so, uh, my other question was just where can we find out more about you about mingle and great um sorry mingle and grace where are you mm-hmm. online on social media yes so please if you want to follow along our journey follow us on um at mingle and graze spelled out on Instagram and Facebook. We do have a website as well, mingleandgraze.com. But I'm very um, active on Instagram, on social media. And so it's, um, I'm the only, I'm the one who runs our social media. I don't have any fancy, you know, social media people to do that. So when, when I'm speaking or when, when you see a blurb, it's, it's me who's, who's writing up about it. And one of my goals actually with Mingle and Graze is to also, and I'm not sure if I'm going to do it on our Mingle and Graze page or my personal page, which is Mathom Artisanal on Instagram. But really, I want to talk about, I want to try to influence people to, you know, start their own business if that's a passion that they have. So um, stay tuned for that. But on the storefront, we are going to have a liquor license soon before our shop was Bring Your Own Booze BYOB. But because of COVID, we've just kept our dining room closed. So we're going to be doing to-go beer, wine, and liquor sales with our cheese. So we're going to have a lot of awesome deals. So if you are in the Phoenix Valley area listening, um, um, follow us on social media for those deals. And I am planning on trying to figure out a way with shipping. So if you are elsewhere, we'd love to ship to you as well. Well, certainly keep us posted on that because although I know you said that to cure your um, or to cure anyone's cheese addiction, they should just open a cheese shop because of the opportunity to binge on occasion and then abstain the rest of the time. But I could almost guarantee you that would not work for me. (laughs) (laughs) It is that bad. Um, The proportion of our grocery budget that goes to fine cheeses and things to go on charcuterie boards in this house is a little... um, obnoxious. <laughs> good. I love hearing that. that makes me happy. I will look forward to the day that Mingle and Gray's offers um, shipping. And yeah. in the meantime, I will, you know, keep plugging away with Sandy on this project to bring you great stories and voices of women um, who work with food, who study food, or just have a great relationship with food and want to share that. Or maybe not a great relationship, but just a relationship with food and who want to share that with our listeners. Um, this has been another episode of Femme Dish. You can find out more about myself and Sandy at www.femidish.com. That's F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H, which is also how you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. So thank you so much, Mefem. It has been a pleasure and you have been our first guest out of Arizona. So yay for that. (laughs) And I, I look forward to following along with your business and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Hope and Sandy. I really appreciate all of you and the listeners as well. Thank you.
was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you? 